Turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll be in Nehemiah 2 this morning. Um, In fact, go ahead and stand with me as we'll read Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Nehemiah 2, 17. This is is God's word, and if you let it, it will change your life. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. This is Nehemiah speaking. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words of the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, They jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Pray with me. Father, I pray that this morning, as we look at the beginning of the work, that we will have the wisdom to know what to do for your calling. Help us to do your work. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You can make all the plans you want to make. You can take all the time to assess the situation and make all the preparation that you deem necessary, but eventually it is time to put your boots on the ground and get to work. You you see it in sports. Coaches spend hours and hours in the film room developing a strategy for each game. They look for clues to how to best beat their opponent. They devise specific plays, put players in strategic positions, and seek to exploit their opposition's weaknesses. From the very first whistle, from the very tip-off, from the very moment the game begins. But it all goes to pot if the players don't do the plan. You, You see it in parenting. Every single one of us used to be an expert in parenting, and then we had kids. Some of y'all are laughing. You're honest. Some of you are <laughs> not laughing because it hurts too much. We read the books. We thought about our discipline techniques. We had a strategy for every possible scenario that we could foresee. But then when baby Junior was born, oh man, did that, that all change, huh? We learned very quickly that we became dumb as rocks when it came time to raise kids. You see it in war. It doesn't matter how much PT or basic training you go through, nothing prepares you for bullets flying at you. Nothing. Preparation's good. In fact, it's essential. Making plans, seeking God's will, those are vital components. Prayer is the breath of spiritual life. But sometimes you just got to obey. Sometimes you just got to do what you're being called to do. And until you do it, you won't be obedient to God's will. Nehemiah has reached the point where the planning phase is done. Yes, there will be some tweaking and there will be some re-strategizing to come. Certainly will. That always happens. But now it's time to actually get some stones in place and build a wall. He's got to the point where he has inspected, he knows what needs to be done, he's got the authority and the materials promised by the king, it is time to get to work. 
So he calls the people to action. And the very first thing he does, I think it's kind of interesting. Look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with the gates burned. When Nehemiah addresses the people, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, oh, it's not all that bad. It always cracks me up because one of two things happen. Depending on this particular environment, whenever the president gives a State of the Union address, either he has just taken office and everything is terrible, but he's going to fix it, or he's been in office and everything is going great and he's going to make it even better. Right? Just depends on the situation. You want to hear the worst possible news about America you get a president who's just been elected given a State of the Union address. Man, he makes it sound like America is in a crapshoot. I mean, it is terrible. Everything is bad. It's all going down. Man, we have had a terrible, terrible time of it. You want to hear America at its best, get a president that's looking to be reelected, giving a State of the Union at the beginning of that year. Boy, America has never looked better. And it doesn't matter. It's both sides that do it. That's okay. And I can understand that, right? You don't want a president that says, man, I'm doing a terrible job, do you? No. Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't say, hey, guys, look, this isn't all that bad. I mean, yeah, so we need a few stones. We need to kind of get a wall. That's no problem. We'll have this done in no time. Look at his split. He doesn't do that. But he also doesn't make it a lot worse than it is either. He doesn't say, oh, boy, y'all have really screwed this up. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't claim that it's a great catastrophe when it's just a minor inconvenience. You see, Nehemiah has made an honest assessment. And now he's going to present it honestly. In fact, it sounds an awful lot like the report that he was given by Hanini and the others back in chapter 1. They said, Jerusalem is in great trouble. Its gates are ruined. Or its, its wall is ruined and its gates are burned. And look what he says here. It's almost the same thing. You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burn. He says, look, here's our situation. You know it better than anyone. You've lived here. You've seen it every day for the last up 10 years that you have been in Jerusalem. Maybe, maybe some of these folks came with Ezra 13 years ago. And he's saying, look, you've been here. You've been here over a decade. You know the condition that we're in. Some of these folks may have been here a long time before. Some of these folks, their families had come in the first return of exiles under Zerubbabel back in 538. And they are, they are generations now back in the land of promise. And it doesn't look much like milk and honey. It doesn't look much like a promised land. It looks more like a difficult slob. Nehemiah presents, honestly, he just says, hey, this is what's, we, you know what's going on. You can see it with your own eyes. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. We're in trouble. He doesn't sugarcoat it, but he doesn't oversell it either. He just simply tells the truth. But then he goes one step further. And, and by the way, sometimes that's all we need. Sometimes all we need is just to see the truth. I, I was a member of a church in my college years that was just that kind of church. It didn't matter what it was. It didn't matter. Whatever it was, all the pastor had to do was get up one Sunday and say, here's a need. And by the next Sunday, that need was met. We need, uh, there was a family in the community that was a poor family that had a handicapped daughter. She was in a wheelchair and couldn't do much of anything about it. 
Family couldn't get her anywhere. They didn't even have, they didn't have a reliable vehicle, not to mention one that could fit a wheelchair. For those of you, some of you might know this from having someone or being someone who, who needs special accommodations. Wheelchair accessible vans are not cheap. They are very expensive. So this church in the days before crowdsourcing and internet, before Facebook, I mean, basically working with classifieds and word of mouth, collected donations from all over the country to give this child's family a van that she could ride in. It was just that kind of a church. Now, you could, you could say all you want, but there's just some people that once they know there's a need, they jump all over it. In fact, I remember several times the pastor getting up and saying, we have a need for this, and there it was. People stepped up. All they needed to know was that there was a need, and the money was there. It's just that kind of place. But sometimes it takes more than just knowing the need. Sometimes, sometimes we don't meet the need because we feel like we can't meet the need. And I think that's what may have been happening here. I think Nehemiah is facing that kind of challenge where he's in the midst of a hopeless people. And it's one thing to have a group of people that have the resources and that have the energy and, and they're trying, they're working on it, but they're just not there yet. They just need a little more time, a little more energy, a little bit more resources, but they're on their way. It's a whole nother thing when you got a, a people that's just in abject hopelessness and they don't even see how to even get started. And here's why I say I think Nehemiah is facing this kind of a problem. I just told you a little while ago, about 100 years earlier, the first Jews had arrived back in the area. 538, Zerubbabel leads a group of exiles from now Persia, was Babylon, but then the Persians took over. Cyrus is now king over all of Babylon and Persia and, and much of the known world of the time. And he allows some Jews to return back to their homeland, as many as want to go. And so a group of Jews under Zerubbabel go back. 538 B.C. is the year, give or take maybe a year. Then about 30 years later, the temple is finally completed. 515, they had had start and stop. They had laid a foundation and were overcome with obstacles and faced all kinds of work. They, they started rebuilding their houses instead of rebuilding God's house and, and got their priorities mixed up and, and called back under, under the men like Haggai that prophesied in that time. They rebuilt the temple, 515, the temple's completed. Nothing like Solomon's. They don't have all the gold all over the place. They don't have the magnificent splendor of the old temple, but it doesn't matter. They got a place. They got something. Ezra, a little while later, five, uh, excuse me, 458 BC, leads the second round of exiles. This is uh, under this same king, Artaxerxes I, early in his reign. They come back. His job, his job, he's a scribe, he's a priest. His job is to bring the spiritual renewal. But we've had a group of Jews almost here for 100 years. 70 years the temple has been built. 13 years the last group of exiles have been there. Now Nehemiah leads a third group in 445 BC and the walls are just as damaged as they were when Nebuchadnezzar took exiles with him along with everything else and left Jerusalem in ruins. 151 years earlier. Now, I don't know about you, but when something's been ruined for 151 years, it's hard to think that it could ever be fixed again. We got a, we got a mill downtown. I don't think it's been 150 years abandoned, 
but it's been abandoned long enough. You look at that building and you can see, see what the path, what used to be. And even now it's still a difficult task for anyone to get any kind of work done and any sort of revitalization in that mill. And that's not even 150 years ago. That's not even in a group of people that are poor. They're having trouble making ends meet. Day after day, they've gone about their lives. They had a difficult enough time of it. They had no hope that things would get any better. Forget the wall. Some of these folks were struggling to keep a roof over their heads. Struggling not to have to sell themselves or their kids into slavery to pay off the bills. Hopelessness must have abounded in Nehemiah's day. That's why he was sent. That's why he wanted to go. It wasn't just because of a wall. The whole city needed revitalization. Now, when hope is in short supply, sometimes it takes someone with fresh eyes and an active faith to get things moving in the right direction. So Nehemiah calls them to have hope and faith to get to work. Look at the end of 17. He says, you see the situation we're in? Then he says, look, come. If you want to say go, you can say go. Hebrew has a language, has a word for go. In fact, it's a same, it's the same word, a little bit different. The same basic word. If he wanted to say go, he could have said go. Instead, he says come. He says, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. You know what he's telling them? We can do this. We can do this. Come on, let's do this. Forget, look, I know it's been hard in the past, but we can do this. I know we can. For Nehemiah, the solution to the present trouble and shame is to rebuild the wall. Why? Well, first, you can't really have a city if if everything is hopeless. They need this wall to get a victory. They need something that will get them in the right direction, something that will turn them from hopelessness to hopefulness. They need something that will get them out of this mindset that it's never going to be any better moving toward a common purpose and goal. They need that. But even more than that, they need protection. Let's just get real honest here. A wall broken down and in shambles leaves a city vulnerable to all forms of attack. No city, no city would be able to stand against an army without any kind of protection. Jerusalem was a sitting duck. But it also will bring an end to shame. That, that word derision, that's disgrace. He says, you know, we're living in shame because we don't have this wall. Now, does a wall bring pride? Not really. But I'll tell you what it does do. It prevents folks that have a wall from mocking you. Oh man, they're serious. They're really serious about protecting themselves. They're really serious about building this city, about building their lives back. They're really serious about it. Because now they're putting in the fortifications that they'll need to protect their work. Man, you built a good strong wall. No, the wall doesn't do much. But just the fact that now you can really get to work on the inside of that wall, that makes you feel better. It's a weight off your shoulders. So it will enable the revitalization. It will bring protection. It will end their disgrace. Without a wall, they're the laughing stock of the region. And guess what? They already were. Look in verse 19. So these folks, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they hear what's going on. And then look at, look at, look at the middle there. They jeered at us and despised us. They're laughing. They're mocking Jerusalem. Oh, what are you going to do? You're going to build your wall, huh? I see. Yeah. Okay. 
All right, you you just you just build you just build your little wall. You go right ahead. They despised us. They mocked us. They said, "What you doing? Not rebelling against the king, are you?" <laughs> now the people really are hopeless. They're not. They're not really going to be able to stand to this kind of attack. Oh, and don't worry, the attacks get worse. Like this is just this is. This is um, warm-up pitches before the game. This isn't the real opposition. This is just the light-hearted stuff to get going. It's going to get much worse. But if they're going to actually do something, if they're going to actually build this wall, if they're going to actually find success in the work before them, Nehemiah recognizes that he has to take them from this point of hopelessness to this point of being, being mocked and being shamed. He has to pull them from that to a hopefulness, to a recognition that this is actually possible. When you've only lost all your games, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, there comes a point when you think you can't win anymore. Amen? Maybe some of y'all haven't lost like that. I was a, I was a, on a soccer team. First year, our so- the, the school had a soccer team, and I was on it. I was one of the, one of the first year team members because they had tryouts and we barely had enough for a team and so nobody got cut. Yes, I made it. Anybody who wanted to play, play. That's, that's how hard it was to field a soccer team in Mobile, Alabama it, it, when I was doing this, okay? My seventh grade year, okay? Seventh grade, I'm on this soccer team. We played in the city league and the city gave us special permission because we were a school just starting out. I guess they knew we would be terrible. We weren't going to be a threat. So they said, all right, you can play in the city league and you can have kids from your school. So instead of every, normally everybody, like they rate players and they, they, you know, everybody gets a pick and, you know, you try to build a team like that to try to make the teams fair. They said, y'all just, y'all just take students from your school. That's fine. Okay. We went 0-7 and 1. That's right. One tie. And I scored the goal to make that tie. Four goals our team scored that year. Four different players. Nobody got more than one goal. I don't want to know. I, I've forgotten, and it's a good thing I've forgotten. I don't want to know how many our opponents scored on us. But it was a lot more than four. We didn't win. Y'all, losing. I know a little bit about losing. My high school, we had a, we had a football team that was just not very good. It had been good in years past. It wasn't very good while I was there. And uh, one season in particular, we went winless, 0-10, and and that included a loss to Baker High School. Now, if you know anything about high school sports, you know that Baker High School had a 40, I think it was 43-game losing streak. They beat us to end it. That's how bad that season was. I know a thing or two about losing. A lot more than than I'd like to know, to be honest. When you lost that much... It's hard to think you could ever win again. Man, when the 0-43 Baker team beats you, it's hard to think that you can pull anything out of that. Can I tell you something? Nehemiah's got to change the heart of this people. And look what he does to do that. Verse 18, and I told them. What did he tell them? Did he give them the old win one for the Gipper kind of speech? Did he give him one of the great classic Lombardi speeches or, or, or one of the, one of the, the, um, the John F. Kennedy, ask not what your country can do for you type things? 
we choose to go to the moon? Did he do something like that? No. I don't think what he said was very worth repeating because he doesn't even repeat it. He just summarizes it. But look what he told them. I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. Your Bible might say something like the gracious hand of my God that was upon me. I told them how God's good hand was on me. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Nehemiah comes with two words of testimony. First, he had the king's authority. He had all the resources he needed. He had letters of authority that said he's able to pass through to Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild this wall or they're going to need all of these different things. Here is the requisite uh, uh, requirements. He had a blank check from the king so that he could spend whatever he needed to spend to get the supplies he needed to build that wall. He had everything that he needed from the king. In fact, I bet not only does he come, but he probably comes with some folks from the king's court that happen to be expert builders. I, I almost think that's who he's walking around with early in this chapter. Some folks that can help him strategize the build. Some folks that are some, some engineers, some architects, some folks that can look at the situation and say, OK, all right, I know what we need to do here. Oh, yeah, with this type of ground, with this sort of setup, here's here's what this needs. He has everything he needs from the king. But that's not even, that's the afterthought. Because Nehemiah recognizes this is a pagan king, but he's in God's control. Look, look what he says. He says, the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. See, this was all in God's hand. If the king's approval was a boost, what do you think the king's approval was? Oh, it was more than a boost. The king's approval, that was a calling. And knowing that the king is on his side, knowing that the king was on their side, boy, that must have been quite the injection of hope. We're talking a lot about vaccines. That's a vaccine that a lot of us could use. We all have that time where we feel like there's nothing else, that, that we can't do anything else, that we are hopeless. Boy, do we need this injection of God's good hand upon us bring hope in a hopeless situation. And what a difference it makes. They go from hopeless to, into verse 18, and they said, let us rise up and build. Let's do this. He says, come, let's build. I can see the shaking hands. I can see the, the wandering glances of, are you sure about this? And he says, listen, God's hand has been upon me. Listen to everything that has gone on with the king. Let me show you what God has done already. And they hear that and they say, all right, Let's do this. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. Notice, notice that good again. God's good hand upon his people to do his good work. Hey, that's, that's a pretty good formula. I wonder if we could apply that today. Are we not God's people? Is not God's hand upon us? Does he not give us good work to do? Oh, of course he does. Jesus tells his disciples, Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see what? your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul tells the Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Did you hear any qualifications there? All sufficiency, all things, all times, every good work. Oh yeah, and abound. 
He doesn't seem to be tempering that at all, does he? I wonder, I wonder if he's on to something. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith that is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works that any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Have I made my point yet? Or shall we go further? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be a complete, equipped for every good work. God's given us everything we need. His hand is upon us. So don't you think it's time to get to work? He's called us to do good work. Just as Nehemiah and the people were called to do the good work of rebuilding the wall and restoring God's heritage in his city. So he's calling us to build his kingdom here on earth. Just as it did with Nehemiah and his people, God's hand confirms his calling on us. The testimony that God was with them gave, strength, gave them strength to build and it will give us strength too. That doesn't mean it'll always be easy. We looked at verse 19 earlier. Look at it again. But when Samballot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you were doing? Are you rebelling against the king? In the Hebrew, the wording is a little stronger. It, it's literally, are you doing this against the king, you rebels? Just as soon as they begin to work. Soon, soon as they begin to do God's work, the opposition arises. That, by the way, is a pattern too. They mock, they despise, they accuse. Look, look at the language. Now, now, the Bible has already called it a good work, and it's God's good hand upon them to do this good work, but they're calling it evil. They're saying, you're rebelling against the king. Now, forget the papers in Nehemiah's hands that says, no, the king is all up for this. Forget that. They are completely misconstruing this action. It's not, it's not a work of rebellion. It's a work of obedience. But then again, the opposition doesn't care about God's work. It's also a veiled threat. You sure you want to go through with this? You don't want to be rebelling now, do you? Sure would be a shame if the king heard that y'all were rebelling against him. You see where this is going. Keep that in the back of your mind. It's going there. Next week, we're going to really unflesh this opposition. But Nehemiah ain't having it. Look at verse 20. There, then I replied to them. Up until this point, it's always been us and we, right? In this, in this, in this story, there's some I that Nehemiah does, but but so far this morning it's been we. Let let us rebuild, right? You see the trouble we are in. Let us rebuild. And now he says, then I replied to them. He takes it square. He he stands up straight in front of them. I can picture him in their face, saying, "Uh, no way." Not here. I can almost picture them saying it to some people and Nehemiah walking up, getting between them and them and saying, no, go away. This is our work. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. That's confidence. And we, his servants, will arise and build. That's even more confidence. God's going to make it work. God's going to make us prosper. We're going to do this. You leave. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. You know what he's telling them? He's telling them not only do you have no part of this, you got no part of anything of this. None, none of the history, none of the present, none of the future. You got nothing. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. 
And then what follows in chapter 3 is pretty impressive. In fact, um, your Bible, if you have a good number of maps in the back of your Bible, um, my pastor used to say, from Genesis to maps, talking about the whole Bible, because the maps are at the very end. Take, a, take some time, look this afternoon in the back of your Bible in your maps. You might have a map of what Nehemiah's wall looks like. If you're like me and have a study Bible, mine happens to be on the page. So you can actually see the wall, a picture of the wall as they've drawn it on the page. Some of you may have that, some of you may not. A quick internet search should be able to pull that up for you. Just look up Nehemiah's wall and you should be able to see an image of it. But take that image, take your Bible, and read through this chapter and follow along the wall as person by person, family by family, do the work. It's amazing. Um, they, they, each one builds a section. I can't build a mile and a half of wall. Certainly can't do it quite a bit thick. Imagine a two-lane road. That's about the width of the wall. Great Wall of China, that, that's about how wide this wall is going to try to be. They're going to try to build this wall up. This isn't a little tiny wall. We think of a wall, and we think of like uh, what you put um, what you put between, like if you've got a hill, and you put those, those blocks that are like this big, you just got like a row of them, you know, to kind of keep the hill back. This isn't that kind of a wall. This isn't a retaining wall. This is a wall. This is a get up and ride your chariots both directions on top of a kind of a wall. This is a wall to, to keep an army out of the city kind of wall. You don't build this thing tiny. This is huge. This is a wide thing. And so imagine trying to build a mile and a half of this thing. This ain't a one-man job. So everybody says, you know what? I can't build the whole thing, but I can build this section. Let me take this gate. Elishab, the high priest, takes the sheep gate. Now, the sheep gate is up top. It's one of the fortifications uh, uh, right into the entrance of the temple. It's where everybody would bring the sacrifices through into the temple grounds. That's where it all came through. If you were outside the city coming in, you came in through the sheep gate to get into the temple. He says, I'll take that. Somebody else says, hey, I live right here. I'll build the wall right beside my house. Somebody else says, here's a strategic point. You're already building my wall because I live next to you. I'm going to go down here. And section by section, this wall gets built. Now, if you've ever built Legos, you know you can't just build something and build something right next to each other. It doesn't stay sturdy, right? you got to lock them in together. This is the difference between real Legos and the knockoff brands because the knockoff brands will, will say that they're like 80 pieces and 70 of them are the little one-by-one squares that they're using to fill in the gaps, okay? I mean, I'm... I'm not joking about that. <laughs> Sometimes it's really like that. Um, but on the Legos, they know you got to interlock them. You got to put the pieces strong, firm together so that, so that when you put these layers together, they're going to hold firm. You need these walls to hold firm so they build the stones on top of each other, interlocking them so that they fit well, so that they are firm. That requires coordination. So it's not just I'm building my section here and I don't care what you're doing. It's we're going to work together to make this seamless. We're going to make sure that we do this right. One more detail I want you to point out. When you read through this chapter, and I want you to read through this chapter this afternoon, you won't be able to pronounce many of the names. That's okay. Grasshopper works just fine. You don't have to read it out loud. Just say the first letter, whatever you need to do. But I bet you most of the names you will have never heard before in your life. Some of them might share a name with someone else in the Bible. 
but it's a different person. These are, and I don't say this derogatorily, these are nobodies. They're not famous. You're not going to, it's not like Jabez, where they're going to get their best-selling books named after them and, and people are going to pray the prayer of Jabez. You know, it's not like that with these folks. We don't know anything about them other than that they helped build the wall. They happened to be there. They stepped up. They did their part. That's it. That's all we know. Some of them, we know their father's names, but we don't even know their fathers. These are nobodies. Nobodies. And that's a great truth about God's work. For every one Billy Graham that you see, there are hundreds of nobodies working to help that ministry prosper. For every Nehemiah that you see, there are hundreds of nobodies who are building their section of the wall, faithful to do what they can do. And you know, that's really the secret of God's work, isn't it? Faithful obedience. We might be thinking today, you know, um, God's given us all of these great things that we're to do. He's called us to make disciples of all nations. I can't make disciples of all nations, but I can tell you what, I can make a disciple of one. Maybe your section on the wall is, is a certain sporting event that you go to for your kids or grandkids. You can make disciples there. Maybe your section of the wall is, is a, a certain place where you work. You can make disciples there. Maybe your section of the wall is that you like to go to a nursing home and, and just love on a couple of folks there and, and just, just help them share God's love to them. And maybe your discipleship effort is there. Maybe that's your section of the wall. Maybe your section of the wall is some kind of talent that you have. Maybe you are an incredible administrator. And your section of the wall involves putting together things that help people do what God has called them to do. Maybe your section of the wall is down on the floor begging God to work through His people to accomplish His will. Maybe that's your section of the wall. What we call those prayer warriors. Maybe that's you. Maybe your section of the wall is, is a talent like a musical talent. And, and, and you should be using that. Maybe that's your section of the wall. Not everybody has the same section of the wall. My section of the wall is to be long-winded on Sunday mornings, but to expose God's word to his people to help them do what God's calling them to do. That's my section of the wall. My section of the wall is to help pastor and bring up a church that will do the work that God is calling us to do and not be worried about all the obstacles. Yes, there will be opposition. I pray to God that we're opposed because if we're not opposed, we must not be doing something right. We must not be working the right plan. Yes, I want opposition because I know we can thrive. God's good hand is upon us. Maybe your section of the wall is something completely different. Maybe your section of the wall is that you've got some crazy family members that desperately need Jesus. That's your section on the wall. Man that station and build that wall. Whatever God is calling you to do, whatever your section of the wall is, whether you get great fame and notoriety or whether nobody even remembers you 20 years after you're gone, build faithfully. Work faithfully. Don't quit. Because that's what we need. We need faithful obedience to do God's good work. God's calling each and every one of us. What's he calling you to do? We're going to sing a verse of invitation. I'm going to invite you just to say yes, Lord do what he's calling you to do. Pray with me. Lord, you, you're, you might not be calling us to build a literal wall. You might be calling us to build something, but it may be figurative. It may be to build your kingdom by 
making a disciple where we are, someone that you have put in our path, that you have given us the ability to reach, the ability to grow, the ability to nurture to maturity, whatever section of the wall that you have assigned us, I pray that we would be faithful and obedient to do the work you've called us to do. Help us strengthen our hands for the good work and help us start building right away. Father, this is your day, not ours. Help us find the ways to use it for your glory, to do your good work, that you may be praised. Lead in the sign of invitation and we will follow you. In Christ's name, amen.